This is the Place for a Purpose podcast. We want to help you live out what Jesus said was the most important thing you could do with your life. Love God and love your neighbor, including your next door neighbors. So we're going to keep neighboring on your mind by encouraging you with practical ways to connect with those next door so you can live knowing you've been placed for a purpose because your address is not an accident and neither is your neighbor's. Welcome back to the Place for a Purpose podcast. Today, we have Alan Briggs joining us for a conversation about the impact we can have by being rooted in our neighborhoods. Among many things, Alan is a mountain climber and a guide for real-life mountains, and he's also a mountain guide for the leadership mountains that all leaders eventually face. He does this through leadership coaching and his podcast's Right Side Up Leadership. He's also the author of a number of books, including the one we're going to talk about today, Staying is the New Going, Choosing to Love Where God Has Placed You. Welcome, Alan. Thanks so much for being with us here today. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Excited to dive into a conversation with other people who care about the stuff that I do. So this will be fun. As soon as we saw your book, as soon as we heard about it and we ordered it and we read it, we knew before we read it that we were going to love it. Staying is the new going, like Chris said. And in it, you talk about the benefits of longevity and the benefits of staying in our places, that it's not always sexy. And actually, We heard that early on when we shifted our ministry focus to be neighboring. Someone said that to us specifically. This isn't sexy, right? Thank Mm -hmm. you for that. You say maybe it's boring, but that's because sometimes we want the next new thing, the next adventure, the next new neighborhood. We can be these carousel neighbors, so to speak. And so you call us to a faithful presence. So what does that look like? The background on that was that came out of us accidentally moving into a neighborhood that I'd maybe driven past once or twice, had made no significant impact on me, but just wouldn't have been the neighborhood I would have chosen. I would have chosen cooler or older or that part of town. This is not that part of town. It just is. It's that land in between for us. And so I think it's realizing that God has us in this place, in this space, in this season amongst these people. And so it's actually a receiving posture to say, I receive what you're handing to me, which was a great house. We're not struggling in the place that we're in. I love looking up at the mountains. I live in Colorado. It's a great city to live in. And so we're neither struggling nor we're thinking this is the exact place that I will put myself on the globe. And so I think that's for physical space. And I'm a huge fan of proximity. But I also believe that there are these issues that land on us based on where we live, the actual physical neighborhood. And that's as simple as the people who have literally died since then. And I've done memorial services or helped people grieve or the challenging situations that land on you simply because of who's around you. Secondly, I think in the lens of the city to say, if you are there long enough and are faithfully present, people will invite you into more influence, period, is that people will trust you more. And as that trust gains, either you're going to get invited onto boards, you're going to invite it into living rooms, you're going to get invited to literally make that place, to do good placemaking. And so what I've found is actually doing it in the micro there in the neighborhood and amongst leaders has grown in different layers of that. I'm now getting invited into different spheres that I wasn't in before, simply because I think when you're faithfully present over a long period of time, people trust you more. And eventually when they trust you, they're going to invite you to influence them. 
I know from reading the book, you haven't always thought this way, but tell our listeners, when did things start to shift and what was that process like for you? I'm a recovering adventure junkie, an adrenaline junkie. (laughs) And so for me, I love travel as well. And so I actually have this thing for B-rated cities that are not the New York, San Francisco, LA. Those places are amazing. I was in New York City last week. It's an unbelievable place, but the problem is it's unbelievable. And we don't imagine ourselves living there, let alone the cost of living. But it's those B-rated and even C-rated cities, the very normal places around us, the Indianapolises, the Pittsburghs, the Colorado Springs, insert city here that you're like, huh, I wonder what's going on in Buffalo. I've traveled a lot of those, actually do that annually to just explore those places. And every single time I found that they're teeming with life, new and beautiful things are happening and they all have issues as well. And so when we move to this space of being a pilgrim, i.e. staying long enough to see the issues and not just, oh, this would be amazing to live here or to live near the beach or to live near the mountains, then we can fully own being beyond the honeymoon phase of, hey, here are the challenges. Do I actually want to do this long-term? And my place particularly is struck with, hey, we'll move there for a couple of years, do the out west Colorado adventure, and then move on back closer to mom and dad or wherever that is. And so when you stay long enough as a pilgrim, you have to choose to love the place, warts and all, cracks and all in your city. And so I think that's been the beauty of moving beyond just being that adventure junkie to say, I can still learn from other places. I can still enjoy being in other places and I can be a tourist somewhere else, but I can only be a pilgrim in one place. And I've chosen for it to be this place right here, right now, in this moment, in this season. So you talk a lot about incarnational ministry, which is a big word. Could you unpack that a little bit for us and tell us what that looks like in your context? I think you mentioned you're in Denver, right? So you're in a city. What does that look like in your neighborhood, in your city? Explain more about that. And just what is incarnational ministry? So I'm in Denver's little brother, Colorado Springs. That is a bit of a runt compared to Denver. (laughs) Every city I've ever been in has a tale of two cities. And it's what you know from the outside, and therefore the illusion, what we think we know. Essentially, the social media presence of a city, right? The curated version of that, good, bad, or otherwise. And then the actual version, right? When we get into relationship with people, it was like, oh, I saw the illusion of who you were. Now I actually know who you are. For me, in terms of incarnational, I would just say ground level. As we fly over a city, it can be beautiful. As you think at high level, oh, if I lived there, I would do this, this, and this. But eventually, to say, here's what it looks like at ground level, here are the cracks. And I mentioned throughout the book, the cracks in our city. And one of those cracks, it's across the country right now, but loneliness is a huge deal. And we have our own version of it right here. The loneliness epidemic has hit us here in Colorado in a unique way, an overemphasis on experiences. In some places, maybe there's an overemphasis on family. As much as that's hard to believe, there's actually, I think, in the Midwest, maybe an overemphasis there. In New York City, I can feel this success and this monetary, I must take this over. In LA, I can feel the glitz and the glam and the desire there. But in your own city, you've got these cracks and you can feel them. And so the longer you stay, the more I think you're beckoned into those, again, with the opportunities. For example, I have partnered up with a friend and now business partner to create a co-working space, meets a hub space for different businesses and professional development. And as you go further into that, as an extension of my presence here in the city, we get 
influence with businesses, nonprofits meet here. I get to learn more about real estate agents that are struggling right now to feed their families. And we have actually entered into this transitional membership that we have here at our co-working space, which is if you're out of a job and you're struggling to get out of bed in the morning to have purpose, come here and in this community, you'll find some purpose and maybe even find a job. And in the last two weeks, we've actually helped two people find jobs that were looking for the right person, looking for the right opportunity in that I never would have guessed that we would be doing this work because it's not actually about matchmaking. It's not even about co-working and events and having a hub space. It's actually about being compelled by this loneliness epidemic that you say, here's our own city's flavor of that. It's incredibly disconnected and everybody's acting like they're living the dream and everything's going great. And literally they are getting ground down by the challenges of that. If you're not at ground level, you just don't know that. So it seems like someone could be rooted or at least stay in a place for a long time, but not be incarnational, not be a part of the community, mm-hmm. that maybe not looking for those cracks. And so what I hear you say is to be incarnational is to just start somewhere like you did with this shared working space, or you just start getting to know your neighbors. And then as you do that, you become more embedded, more involved with what's going on. And then you begin to have these opportunities for ministry, but it takes a step, right? In the direction. Yeah, absolutely. I love how business starts And I also love how neighboring starts. And I think both of those start well in identifying what are the pain points here? What hurts in this neighborhood? And for us, we saw the loneliness epidemic because front porches were empty. And again, this could be endemic of our whole culture, but front porches were empty. People talked about block parties way back in 88. Wait a minute. You can remember back that far. And what's holding us back from being on the front porch? What's holding us back from being front yard people? What are the cracks deep down in people's lives? And once we started to discover those, then we at the same time started to see the beauty of that Mm -hmm. and the resilience of overcoming those things, the challenge and just the pain and stuckness that they felt. And that's essentially how a good business starts as well, is what's the pain point? And then we move from there versus wanting to say, oh, here's what you need to do, or here's what you need to buy, like a business would say. And in a neighborhood, we can come in, oh, here's what we need to do. We need to do block parties. Here's what we need to do. We need to get in people's living rooms. But then we actually need to time out and work backwards and say, what's the pain point? What's the issue? And then we get to work backwards from that crack. And what we say is that the gospel fills in the mortar of those cracks beautifully. And it has an answer to loneliness. It has an answer to disconnection. It has an answer to people flailing on their own in isolation that is called community and partnership and collaboration. And when we bring those things together, there's just a spark, especially today in a very negative culture. There's just a spark that says, I don't know what it is about those people, but they get me and I want to understand them more. And we almost move upstream in that sense. I love that. I was reading recently an article by Tim Keller about the importance of the front porch. This was written a few years ago, but he talked about it specifically as a space in between the outside common space and the inside private spaces of our lives and how that front porch was that intermediary space, that common area where you could engage with neighbors where maybe they weren't in your inner circle yet, but there was a segue. There was a place to gather that might be sidewalk to get them there. And with the loss of the front porch, if they're not coming in our homes and we're not gathering with them in our inner circle, how do we create those spaces that are the in-betweens? How would you say you've seen the importance of the front porch 
What do you mean by that? And how have you seen that play out specifically? And I don't just mean the front porch physically, but I think also that median space that you talk about, which is funny that from the heart of New York City, Tim Keller wrote about that. Rest his soul. We love Tim Keller. But in New York City, they don't have front porches. And you don't really invite people into your living room. You have a small flat and it's incredibly private. And so to them, it's the shop, it's the bodega, it's the sidewalk, it's the pizza spot, it's the place in Chelsea Market where you can go get coffee and brunch on Saturday morning. It's the high line that you walk above the city and do that. And if I lived in Manhattan, I wouldn't use front porch language because they don't have them. And so for us, that's from suburbia in terms of where we live, older houses from uh, the 60s. And there's a very different median space feel. For us, that median space is the sidewalk. For us, that median space is the park. It's the elementary school where parents are mingling for that thin space of 15 minutes where you're joking around before your kids come out. It's wherever those in-between spaces are. And if God's the designer, if God's the creator, then he invites us to co-create and co-design with him. So let's have some innovation here and let's dream and play a little bit around this. And so for some, that's the soccer field. Busy parents, you know yourself, who you are out there. For others, it's actually around work as a co-designer with God and that we're actually inventing a lot of these new media and spaces right now. I think it's a beautiful time of innovation as we've had a lot of our systems wrecked by the last four or five years. And now we get to say, what is the new front porch? What is the new median space? What is the new space where we get to know each other in a non-weird way where we can actually bump into one another? And I think work has a lot to do with that. And that idea that work matters and work shows a spark, man, that's something in the last year or two that I'm really pushing in on is that people want their work to matter. Working from home and from our basement or our office is really not working very well. And how do we draw people back again into those median spaces and out of our back porches and out of our basements and out of our own living rooms out to be with people because we all need to reconnect again. So I think this message actually got a resurgence during COVID again in this book simply because we realized, man, we have fallen so far away from this. And in fact, in my city, our mayor just declared that his biggest initiative is going to be to help the city throw a thousand block parties. So how are we going to get a thousand block parties as the research is out that if just a few people in your neighborhood, then suicide rates go down. A few people that you could call by name and have a conversation with. We are positioned as the people of Jesus to get in those median spaces and draw the world out. So you talk about your neighborhood in the book and some of the things you've done, maybe even recently or referencing some of the stuff in the book. What have you guys tried as far as creating those front porch spaces in your neighborhood? There is the block party, which is great. We've done that. We actually started with that. But someone who's, man, I don't know if I'm up for that. What are some ideas that you've tried that you've seen to be helpful? Let's go low bar here. And so if you think that food of some sort is that we did a cookie exchange once, because again, we had an older neighborhood, several of them have died, but I was like, what do you do with older neighbors? You could bring like a snow cone truck in front of the house on a warm day and say, hey, I know there are people that love to eat with people, but don't love to cook for people. No problem. It's interesting. We had these huge ornate block parties. Everybody's bringing awesome food and 
cornhole tournaments and stuff. And then we would even bring in bands. We had an eighties cover band one year and then people would start to get intimidated. Like I could never do that. And I'm like, no, just do you in your neighborhood. But then we saw there was a guy that owned a taco truck. And this is like a love language of mine. I love tacos. We can do a whole episode on that. Yeah, Let's do it. There we go. Let's talk tacos. And instead of everybody cooking, we literally had him pull his truck around he probably made a thousand bucks that night. We're all just tipping him a bunch. And so for that, it made it such a low bar that just bring your wallet. And we were able to support him in that. We would throw a lot of just exiting Halloween season, which is the one night a year where people actually want to talk to you. And so what we used to do is actually host everybody. Hey, come in. It's chilly. We'll have the solo stove going and roast marshmallows. And we had a couple of those, but this year we actually took this huge moving party around the neighborhood. We just invited anyone that we knew to be able to come with us. And it was a bit more of a mobile thing. And so I just say, get in where you fit in things that bring you joy and delight for us. The best thing we ever did is for a decade, we did something called Free Coffee Friday. So we said it's mediocre coffee with amazing people. Mediocre <laughs> coffee. They wouldn't drink the good craft coffee stuff that I love. We would just post up on the corner and we would pull bus drivers together with school administration, with parents. And it was on Friday. So this is a celebration. We almost made it through the week. And it was this sacred, holy ritual that my kids would help me get things ready. And rain, shine, snow. We were literally doing that for 10 years. And we still have crossing guards and I still have a bus driver that stops around my house once in a while just to say, hey, from that. And then ultimately enough of those people moved and whatnot that we've actually changed the method of how we were involved. Being involved at the school board for a time was a great thing for a season. And so just to remember things are seasonal. So we had a long go at that 10 years of that. The taco truck analogy to say, man, if this is this guy's business and we could pump a thousand bucks You can't get more local than that. The dude lives like seven doors down from us. Pull your taco truck up. We're going to buy from you instead of bringing out the old casseroles from the 1970s Pyrex dishes from my older neighbors. And so I think to realize that we can't fall in love with the method, we have to fall in love with our neighbors. And the method is only to serve that channel of love to them. And the moment that we've fallen in love with the method to say, oh, we are going to have the best coffee week after week and we're going to impress my neighbors. Then I stop loving my neighbors because I'm so intent on impressing them. It's not about the thing. It's about the people. And the tool to be able to get us there is a beautiful thing. And so I've made that mistake at times and I see people making that mistake. And if the thing has to be amazing, you're never going to start. And so I say, just do it scared, make the introduction, take your next right step. And God always surprised us in the meantime. I love that. Get in where you fit in. I'm taking notes. So what I like about what you're sharing is that it's very mundane. It's very ordinary. It feels doable. But then for some of us, we might ask, and you say this in the book, does that count? Help us understand when we're doing these things like passing out a coffee or buying our neighbor a taco or gathering in the driveway, how does that count? And how do we measure that as believers? We all have a different relationship with measurement, but I think at the end of the day, what gets celebrated gets done. And so if we don't believe that it's worthy and we can't celebrate it, then chances are we're just going to stop doing it. If we don't think that it matters. And this is where I think part of us, we just need to trust the father in faith here and bring our humble offering. Part of it, I think it's, we say if a cold cup of water in Jesus name counts, and certainly a hot cup of coffee does. And I just think we need to realize that 
It's the amount of touches over time that you have that bring trust. And in our culture of disconnection and mistrust, psychological studies actually say that if you have empty space in your brain about somebody, you always fill it with the negative, not the positive. And so during COVID, for example, if I didn't see neighbors for a while, I was like, I think they're dead. My neighbors have died in their living room and no one knows. They're older. I never saw anybody going in and out. They never got groceries. And so all that negative space, turns out they were fine. They didn't die during COVID, but my brain's not like, oh yeah, I bet they're just being safe. I'm like, they're probably dead. I think just to realize we're starting from the spot of skepticism and one interaction can change that, but it's not going to buy you this conversation to say, all right, tell me about your childhood baggage right now. And yet you never know when that's going to happen. I love to tell the story of this gal named Sue. I describe her in the book. One of the most surprising things is that I thought she was going to be our obstacle to free coffee Friday. Instead, she offered to make her homemade cinnamon rolls. Sue was misunderstood. She was working the night shift. No wonder she was tired and cranky. She was working the night shift. And when we were up and we were making noise, that was when she needed to be sleeping. What we didn't know about Sue is that she loved what we were doing. And she actually did the night shift for pediatric care in the hospital. And so she cared deeply about people. She just needed her sleep like we all do. And we were on different schedules. Later on, I remember I was just taking the trash out and we had enough touches that it was that time for Sue to share. And it was almost awkward. Hey, what are you doing for Thanksgiving? And she unloaded on me about 60 feet apart as she's yelling about abuse in her family, the reason her family's not going to get together and why Thanksgiving is not a happy holiday for her. And I was sitting there, jaw dropped next to the trash. And I would just say, you never know when that trust is going to break through. Like a friend, you never know when you're going to have that conversation that got you to a new level. And so some of this is just keep showing up, just keep being curious, just keep asking questions. And we're just going to have to trust the father that after enough touches and enough trust, then people will get to moments that feel incredibly significant, but most will not feel significant. It'll just feel like it was another cold Friday morning where he handed out mediocre coffee and had another conversation. And so I think there's a faith element. And when we do things that we just keep creating those regular touches, it's not that much time overall. And maybe it was about 45 minutes a week that people were hanging there, but that's hours and hours of credibility that we build throughout that time. And some of those people counted us in some of their closest friends. You paint a compelling vision for incarnational ministry. The stories of Sue are super amazing, but there's some downsides to staying, right? And being rooted. It's not all rainbows and unicorns. There's risks, there's challenges. What are some of the challenges and some of the risks that we might encounter and take on if we say, okay, I'm going to stay here. I'm going to invest in these people or these places. What should we be prepared for? I live in a place people love to come to and they love to leave. At least it's easy to come here and it's easy to leave. And I don't know that that gets easier. If you don't love saying goodbye to people, I would say, yeah, careful coming and living in our city because it's transient. It hurts. I'm still a human. I'm not a machine. And when people leave that you've invested in, it hurts. It feels personal. We were on mission together. We loved this city. We had plans and dreams together. And so I think there's just a disappointment. Secondarily, I think when you invite other people to come partner on mission with you, which you need to, or eventually this is just you. And we see the burnout just go through the roof in incarnational ministry if you don't bring support in. Those are people coming into my living room who could potentially offend my neighbor that lives 40 feet away from me. And so I have to brief them. I have to educate them. I have to say, be careful about this. And we've had awkward moments before. 
And so it was, the guy had one too many drinks and said one too many comments. I go, man, this guy lives next to me and this person lives across the street from me. And I have to say, hey, that's enough. And so there are real times that are actually messy in relationship. And that's the side of it that we need to share about. And yet we can even be an agent of peace in that and understanding in that. I think sometimes the overglorification of it and somebody can say, hey, these moments are amazing. And I would just say, if you're not willing to continue to show up and continue doing these things for a long period of time, then I'm not sure that it's worth pushing into it because the amount of work that it takes and the amount of energy that it takes, the amount of how small the growth can be. And so can we just commit to something small over a long period of time where we are looking at the long game? And if those three things are true, then I would say, start experimenting your way forward. Start piloting your way forward to be able to do these things. And again, that mundane piece can get challenging when it's the end of the school year, when it's the start of September and everybody's busy, when it's the holiday season and half your neighborhood goes to move somewhere else when you don't know why, but nobody showed up to that thing or you don't know why and everybody showed up to that thing and there's no room in your living room. People are messy and the messiness will come out. And people are beautiful and the beautiful nature of conversation and relationship over time is not always seen in the short term. How has God encouraged you in that specifically? When you found yourself in the mess, in the tension, maybe you've been plugging along, you call it a slow burn for a long time, bearing with, praying for someone, the patience of neighboring, and then it's whatever happens, that now they're 10 steps back, maybe relationally there's some fallout. Who knows? How have you dealt personally with some of that mess and how has God encouraged you? I think the easiest ways to track are when somebody says something. There's external and then there's internal and you've got to have both. But the external, there's a crossing guard who I see her now every day. And she stands at that very intersection where we had a different crossing guard back in the day and coffee. And we see her every day. We wave to Joetta and she talks about, man, those were incredible years. And I got to know these people because of this. I've gotten to know you guys because of this. And that's a literal reminder as I pull in each day and wave to Joetta of, oh man, that's what I need to know that it made a difference. Secondly, as a leader, as an author, when other people reach out from other places and say, I'm not doing free coffee Friday, or we're not working with a local school, but here's what we are doing. Man, that's incredible. And that's a bonus. I can't live off of those things. But when I hear about somebody taking a risk in their own neighborhood and doing something unique in their own city, I just say, oh man, that's incredible. But at the end of the day, I just think we have to get our affirmation from God to say nobody was tapping on our shoulders on a Friday morning to get us out of bed, or nobody's saying, hey, that prompting that you really need to reach out to this person, I need to be as serious about that as I am about reaching out to a coaching client that would pay me, Mm -hmm. or as I am a publisher when something is due on my book. And just to really say, this either matters to me and it's going to be a part of my life and ministry or it's not. And then maybe the last thing is to say, it's really nice to not be formally paid for neighborhood ministry because it takes a lot of the pressure off in terms of the metrics and maybe even reporting that to either donors or being paid. I don't even know how you would calculate that per encounter that we had. And here's how, and Sue filled out a survey that this is making a difference on her life, one to 10. Like, how would you even do that? But to me, to just know, man, this is my life and this matters. And there were a few days where I remember saying, this is wild. This is an adventure. I don't know how I got into this. How is this my life? When the repo guy in the living room that was my 
kids, friends, parents, however the heck they landed in my living room, the repo man right here, who we have never met before, is talking with my elderly next door neighbor, is talking with this guy that then hops on and plays some Christmas carols in my living room. And I go, what has my life turned into? This is beautiful madness. (laughs) And I just have to laugh. Those are the moments I go, yep, I can't write this story. I love some of these questions that you ask. And not to receive them out of guilt, but just to ask ourselves, how many people enter your house in the course of a month? How many of those people don't know Jesus? How many of these people experience God's kingdom and a community of people in your home? How many people have lingered in your home this month? How many last-minute favors have friends and neighbors asked of you this month? That one specifically, that shows there's a reciprocity there where they would feel comfortable to come and ask for something, probably because there's some mutual friendship where things are being shared. How many meals have you shared with people far from the church this month? And you give several others. But I think those types of questions are good to ask ourselves. Are we getting good time? Are we building the Mm -hmm. types of relationships where God's kingdom can really break in? And I actually had to create those questions for myself, because if you notice, all of those will cost you time, energy, money, convenience. And it's that moment when I get the text and Gary says at the exact wrong time in the week, could you drive me all the way across town and get my car? Of which I'm like, hey, thanks for the warning, big guy. Instead (laughs) to go like, no, what feels like an inconvenience is actually that. And so those were private questions I decided to put into the book because I thought, man, the moment I feel like my life is being interrupted is actually the moment we're breaking through. So maybe by way of final encouragement to our listeners, is there any other story that you have or something that's happened or you saw God do as a result of you choosing to stay and not pick up and move on to something new? Yeah, absolutely. The fun thing about a book is that you write it in a moment in time and you have even better stories later. So there are plenty of them. There's a guy I write about there in the story of my neighborhood. Read about those real characters in the story. I took a risk to use their real names as well. And so there's a guy in there, $2 Bill is what we call them. And $2 Bill's home. He lives in an assisted living place. And I'm doing his funeral whenever he'll pass, which I'm honored to do. $2 Bill into his home actually moved this incredible ministry couple. And we've been praying for partners in this. And so these are folks that then throw the solar stove out into their front yard and invite people in. These are folks we can partner with. Our kids run back and forth to each other's homes. And that has been a huge thing. In God's cool plan, this guy had read the book and ends up moving into $2 Bill's home. And he was just this legendary character. You can read about him in the book. The second one is actually, I got to tell you this hard story about there's a gal that does not want to be involved in this community or this neighborhood, just wants a house here. And several awkward encounters where she came over to me and was basically like, stop having your kids invite us to anything. She put up a boundary. Okay, we're a solicitor now. We understand. And there was a day she drove past my house. I was sitting outside. We have a picnic table in the front to basically say, come on up and just invite people. And so I was sitting at the picnic table. She drove past. It was the night after a block party. We'd been a little bit loud the night before. There was live music. And then she hit reverse and I'm like, oh no, this lady is going to have my head right now. We were out too late, which is, I don't know, probably 9.45 or something the night before. She slowed down. She walked up to me and she said, it's not you, it's me. And we proceeded to have, I don't know, probably a 10 minute conversation. Heart was pounding. Nobody else in the neighborhood had had a true sit down conversation with her. And 
that was just an incredible ending to that. Our daughters played together for a few years after that, and they ended up leaving the neighborhood and moving. And I felt like we had this beautiful bit of healing there and her understanding. I actually love what you're doing here in the neighborhood. I just have too much pain I can't enter in. And so that 10-minute conversation changed me. The other neighbors later asked me, what would you guys talk about? What about this? And so to my understanding, it was the only deep conversation she ever had with anyone in the whole neighborhood. And there's some kind of pain from her past that has left her walled off as she's wrestling through. And so that was just a beautiful moment that I actually thought was going to end really poorly. And I would just say, if there's anybody who is taking a risk and you're discouraged, that lady alone was enough discouragement for me to say, maybe we shouldn't be doing this. And there's a beautiful moment of healing there. And that may come for you and it may not. But it's just a reminder to say people are worth it. They're literally people taking their lives because they're so lonely. They're literally people who feel like nobody knows me, nobody cares, and let alone people who just feel lonely, isolated, disconnected, and who need to know about this great gospel. And just a reminder that the gospel fills the mortar or is the mortar to fill these cracks in our communities, no matter what they look like, how deep or wide they are, what the shape of them looks like, which is different to all. And it's a blast. It is so fun to get in and see what God is doing and to call the party and to call people out of that into something greater. We are agents of creating and designing because we are co-creators and co-designers with the Father. So what I'm hearing you say is that if we can resist the urge to just move on to that new adventure, be adventure junkies, neighborhood junkies, if we can Mm -hmm. resist the urge to move on to the next thing that feels more exciting and we can embrace the rootedness of staying, we can experience that incarnation, how Jesus came into our world. He came to us. He moved into our neighborhood and he entered our pain. And you're saying that as you've stayed and you've had enough touches with people, what the privilege is, is getting to be with them in their pain. And that is such a beautiful picture of what Jesus does for us and what a gift to give your neighbors and also I'm sure to experience from them as well. That's probably the part that people don't understand about this as we start with this giving posture. And then at some point in community and relationship, your hands turn and you have to have this receiving posture. And when we experience hard things, it was Jake, the mailman. And it was Jamie that brought the card over and that said to my wife, you need to go get a massage. You've been through a lot. When can we take your kids? You guys need to get it out. Who's going to take care of your dog? Who's going to water your garden? Who's going to come in and check something on your house when you're away? We all benefit when we are part of connected communities. And yet this is a common good. And we as gospel people could be front yard people. And yes, the pain and the joy, at some point it flips and you say, man, I think I've been the biggest recipient here. Thank you, Alan, for giving us your time. This was an amazing conversation. Thank you for painting a vision and inviting us and our listeners into this idea of staying and being incarnational, even amongst the challenges and the mess. It's a really amazing thing to think about. And yeah, we just really enjoyed having you. So thanks for being here. Thanks. Love having this conversation. And anyone listening, so glad you guys are listening along to this great podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Leave us a comment with your thoughts on today's episode or let us know other topics related to neighboring you want to talk about. Or follow the link in the show notes to share a neighboring story with us. Tell us what you're trusting God for in your neighborhood and how you're seeing God at work. 
You can also follow Placed for a Purpose on Instagram, and you can help others find us by leaving a review, subscribing, and sharing this episode with a friend. Music